I'm excited to introduce our guest for today and friend of the show. He's the founder and CEO of Valeshire Capital Management and a retired doctor. I like to call him Dr. Bear, but you know him as Dr. Jeff Ross. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, QP. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. How about yourself? Nice. They, they told us it's not a recession, so we, it must be fine and dandy out there. <laughs> It'll uh, be a recession when they tell us it's a recession. Exactly. exactly. Everybody relax. So, Dr. Bear, I've been hanging out with far too many bullish people, and I think they <laughs> might have gotten to me a little bit for a moment. Would, would love just a temperature check. What are you seeing? What is your overall sentiment of what's going on? Great question. Let me first start by saying, I hope you guys saw those commercials for the people that are watching this right now. Those commercials before this for the Amsterdam Bitcoin conference were awesome. Like I think the advertising team, the marketing team has really stepped it up. So way to go production team. I, I give it, you know, that's like some of the best Bitcoin related content I've seen. Back to the markets. So let's, let's be bearish. Okay. So first of all, let me acknowledge the obvious. The markets are rallying hard right now. In fact, my trading system that I use for Valeshire for my clients and my hedge fund. Actually, as of today, for some of the prominent assets that I, I have on my watch list that we like to invest in, they're actually today flipping from neutral to bullish. So despite my bearish outlook, take everything I say with a grain of salt because my trading system literally is flipping bullish today. What do I look at that, that thing? Things are still ugly though. The macro is ugly, right? You can, we can kind of talk about anything from a macro standpoint and everything points to ugliness. So I would say that so far for the first half of 2022, which was really horrendous, right? If you owned any sort of risk asset, you got destroyed in the first half of 2022. That was kind of to be expected. I think that the narrative for the first half was inflation. People are scared of inflation. What's the Fed? going to do. They're getting hawkish. They're turning hawkish. And that was the primary focus. I think what happened in July is we got really bad data, right? We got another negative GDP print. So we're in a technical recession, but not an official recession because Janet Yellen and the you know NASB says it's not yet one. So, okay. doesn't matter. I, I think we are for sure. And they're going to, they're going to come back in a, in a couple of months or quarters and say, oh, I guess, you know what, we actually, we actually are. And we actually were in a recession. So, so we look at things like that, right? We look at what is GDP doing? We look at the CPI. CPI print came in at 9.1% that's terrible, right? That's huge. Inflation is hot. High inflation means life is miserable, right? People who already can barely afford to pay for gas and groceries, now they just can't afford to pay for gas and groceries, much less buy anything else that might be, you know, kind of cool or fun or a treat. Or, you know, they can't buy new clothes. They can't buy, they can't go out to eat like they could. They're certainly not going to go buy a Starbucks, all those kind of things. So life is getting harder for people. I think what happened, though, is because the numbers were so bad is that people are assuming and the markets are assuming that they can't get any worse. So we've probably sort of peaked or bottomed, depending on how you look at it. And now things might be looking up. So I think what is going on currently is we're seeing a bit of a bear market relief rally. And to be very clear, these can go on for longer than we think they can. The standard bear market rally, when you look at recessionary bear markets, so, so looking at the 2000 to 2002 timeframe and then the 2008, 2009 timeframe, the standard bear market rally in those recessions was 15%, plus or minus about 8%. So, so if you, another way to look at it is kind of in a range from about 8% all the way up to like 23 to 25% or so. That actually happens. And if you look back further in history, you see rallies that can go even higher, 40% rallies before everything comes down again. So 
Why do I bring all this up? Yes, things are bullish at the moment, but when we look ahead at what the bond markets especially are telling us are a couple things. Number one is that I don't think, and, and with much love and respect for my buddy, Greg Foss, who I love dearly, he's just an awesome guy. He thinks the Fed is done. He thinks we've already had a, an official pivot or a soft. I disagree. I think that the two-year bond yields that have ripped higher in the last couple of days, now the two-year bond yield is sitting at 3.128% as we speak. That to me is pricing in at least another 50 basis point rate hike, probably in September and maybe more to come after that. I think that's what the federal officials want. They want to be seen as still being hawkish. If they really want to get inflation down for an extended period of time, they need to be seen as hawkish. So I don't think we have the support from the Fed. There's no proverbial Fed put at the moment. And I think what the, the what else the bond market is telling you, if you look at the yield curve of the U.S. Treasuries, it's still inverted. And not only is it inverted, it's deeply inverted. So every time the 10 and twos invert, and it's basically mostly inverted all across the yield curve, a recession always follows that. Now there is a lag, right? So we may have you know, several quarters before the recession really sets in. Although this time, I just think things are happening more quickly than normal. So I think that we're going to see badness soon, sooner than later. So we're having this relief rally. I don't know how long it goes. Maybe it lasts through the month of August. Maybe it lasts until the CPI print comes out. And then that becomes sort of a buy the rumor, sell the news type event. And then every that's maybe that's the trigger that that turns the market south again. Whatever it is, I'm expecting much more downside to come kind of in the midterm. So hopefully that all makes sense. Short term markets are bullish. Even my system trading system has flipped bullish for the for the time being on certain risk assets. Midterm, so basically months and quarters, very bearish. In fact, I think it's going to get much, much worse from here. I think this could be like a terrible recessionary bear market. Like we could see the S&P. 500 drop 50% or more before this is all over. And then at some point after that, we bottom and then it's glorious after that because then these risk assets that are getting pummeled, then Bitcoin, which is getting, has been getting pummeled already. All of us who've been faithfully stacking sats throughout this year, right? 2022 is the sat stackers paradise. We're still in it. Still a great time to be dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. Then the bull market starts in earnest. I think we're talking 2023, 2024, 2025 should be epic, should be great. That's kind of the playbook I'm following right now. And that was just a lot I threw at you. So I don't know if we want to go in any different angles from here. No, there's a lot, a lot of places that I'm going to take this conversation. So please bear with me. But I want to first start with the bonds mark, bond markets. Shout out John Ficori who flagged this for me. But as of I believe on Monday, the three-year and ten-month yields on the, in the bond market inverted, and that is actually. Weirdly enough, I hate that this is the source that I'm citing for this. The Federal Reserve back in April put out a report saying that, oh, the two 10 year, like that, that's not that important. It's the three month or 10 month, three year. When that inverts, that has 100% of the time indicated a recession to immediately follow that. So even when the Federal Reserve a few months back, tried to sort of move that goalpost. Here we are. The goalpost that you just moved just got triggered. I'm curious, what are you, like, what yields are you paying attention to? What are the levels that you're sort of lines in the sand or potentially like a bullish break to reverse your positions or reverse your, oh my God, I can't think of the word, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. Maybe. I don't <laughs> well, know. Hopefully. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of what I was talking about earlier. What What is the yield curve telling us in general? Anywhere you look across the curve now, it's it's hard to be bullish in any way. Basically, what it's saying 
is the Fed is going to raise rates. The, the, the short term yields believe the markets believe that the Fed will raise rates again. And I think at least 50 bips from here, which is contrary to what a lot of smart other smart people. So obviously I could be wrong, but I'm I'm I'm, you know, placing my bets with with the bond market. So I think we have at least another 50 bips to go. But what the inverted curve is saying, you know, so when it's inverted, the short end is is high and then the longer end is is sort of descending like that. So you get that inverted kind of wonky looking curve. Normally a normal year yield curve is lower on the short end and as you get out in duration it it goes up like this. So now we're kind of going up and then back down again. That's not a normal yield curve shape. And so that's what we mean by an inverted yield. I think what it's telling us is it's going, we're going to see these hikes and then that's going to bring down the markets. And when it brings down the markets, that's when we see the pivot. And then the Fed has to pause at that point. And then the Fed has to turn dovish at that point and start and resume quantitative easing again. I also like to say, by the way, the, the, that quantitative easing is the resting state for the Fed. The Fed always wants to be increasing the monetary supply. They always want to be easing and expanding the credit system. And so these periods where they're tightening, it's just sort of unnatural for them. The markets don't like that. You know, it's like, it's like taking away, uh, you know, somebody's crack and, and, and they, and they just don't like it. They, they want their cocaine and they're not getting it. So, so there's a big tantrum and then, and then they get it again and then everybody's happy again. So there's always prices to pay because of that, but that's what I see. So the, so the treasury yields are very definitive in what they're saying, right? They're saying we're definitely going to have short-term federal fund rate hikes, I think. The markets are not going to like that at, at some point. They're going to crack probably this fall or early winter. So probably by the end of 2022, the Fed will pivot and then they're going to reverse course. And then at some point, the markets and somewhere in there will bottom. Risk assets will, will sense that. And then the first thing to take off probably will be Bitcoin. Look for small cap stocks, look for tech stocks as well to respond quickly and to start the new bull market. So that's how I see things from here. Now, I know if you knew the exact answer to this question, you would not be talking to us. You would, you and your billions and billions of dollars that you made betting on black or red on the roulette table would be off on some island. But I'm curious what possible scenarios, and I want to throw a couple of statistics at you that came across my desk this morning. So the jobs report from last week showed 607,000 fewer job openings, which is the sharpest drop since 2020. And mind you, unemployment in the job sector has been something that Powell, especially last week, was citing as we feel like the job market is healthy, so we're going to keep course. And then this was another one that was interesting. Household debt topped $16 trillion driven by auto and home loans with credit card debt up 13% year over year. Delinquency still sits at 2.7%, but this reads as though Americans are really trying to use as much credit as possible to keep up with inflation. Personally, these are the two places that I'm focusing a lot of my attention on, as well as the bond market, just to see how the yields trade and react, because it seems as though, especially over the last year, the Fed has pretty much just done what the market has indicated it wants it to do. Are there any other of these three types of things? Is there one that you're paying attention to? Are there other indicators that you're looking at that you like right now for the Fed's potential reversal? 
Yeah. So again, I think we're this is ways out, right? So the Fed still has. By the way, I'm wearing my Bitcoin shirt. Get that on camera. Bitcoin. Oh, baby. let's go. Yeah, let's do it. So the the Fed still has further to go. So to your point, they are trying to do this, right? They're trying to destroy demand, and they're starting to succeed. I think it's going to start to play itself out very quickly in the data that's been lagging so far. So real estate kind of lags a little bit. Unemployment lags. We're going to see those numbers, and the Fed's going to get what it wants, and what it wants is demand destruction. And I hate this, right? Because what demand destruction means is people literally are going to lose jobs. They're going to be kicked out go, and, and they're going to be headed out on the street with no work and with cost of goods being extremely, extremely expensive because of inflation. So, and, and we'll see this first in the lower income echelons, right? And we're already seeing that. So to your point, Q, people are maxing out their credit cards already. At some point, you can't do that anymore, right? You hit your maximum limit, what you can put on your credit card. And then now you just have to pay this crazy interest rate of 18 or 20% or so, and you can't put anything else on there. So now you're really in trouble. You were hurting before. Now you're hurting even more because you have even more high interest rate, short-term debt to pay off. So we're going to see that. So we're already seeing delinquencies start to rise in the in the in the lower echelons of the income class. So household debt is going to start rising quickly. We're seeing auto loans. We're going to start seeing defaults on auto loans, and that sort of rises up the income classes. So where it's the most painful and you see it the most quickly is in those lower classes. It's going to start moving up into the middle income classes. The high income classes, obviously, they don't have these same kind of difficulties, right? They're always going to be able to buy their Coke and their Starbucks, but their the wealth effect is. Really and they're seeing the destruction of the wealth effect. So they're seeing their 401ks, their IRAs, all their investments and things, their real estate investments, those are all coming down dramatically. So what do they do? They maybe don't plan a vacation for the next six to 12 months. They they, they do staycations instead of instead of going to Bermuda or going wherever. So it's just, it, it affects all assets of the economy, but you got to think through the different classes and how it affects them differently. This The Fed's getting what they want, but I think they, they have made it very clear they want to see sustained demand destruction. They want to see sustained dis inflation. And so even if we get a, a much lower print or a, you know some kind of significantly lower print in the CPI for July, which that'll come out on August 10th, so a week from today. And I do suspect that. I think we get it's going to be below 9.1, I would say almost for sure, but who knows. They're going to need to see a few months of that before they get less hawkish. So again, they won't pivot. They'll know when to pivot when the credit markets freeze up and when people start to panic. And, and, the, and the equities markets, the stock market will sense that the credit markets are having serious problems because you'll know that because they'll tank 15, 20, 25% or so. That's when everything gets really scary. The last time we saw that, we saw it real briefly during the COVID uh, crisis in March of 2020. The, the time before that where it got really hairy was sort of the second half of 2008 and early 2009 where everything locked up. There was just a massive liquidity crunch. Collateral was hard to find. Everybody was going for the dollar. Oil collapsed. Stocks collapsed. Everything collapsed. People were panicking. I expect that this time around too. And I don't think it's going to take that long to get there. Like I said, I think it happens before this year is over. And then at that point, the Fed will be forced to pivot, right? And I think they're going to do some massive, massive quantitative easing again they're going to start lowering rates again. So it's it's kind of a bleak outlook, but all that I think is necessary before the Fed actually does pivot. They won't pivot before that. So I want to, I'm going to sound like an asshole saying this, Jeff, and I have nothing but respect for you and all of your opinions. <laughs> I've never agreed with you on your take on inflation <laughs> and I still don't. Okay. And, here's, and, it, here's, and it angers him greatly. Here's my and logic. I know why, because of wheat. <laughs> no. 
Oh, it, it all comes back to the wheat. <laughs> fuck Vladimir Putin for fucking me over on that wheat trade. But it's yep. actually because of the price of oil. Yes, oil is now trading at less than $100 a barrel. But that 9.1% inflation rate is not monthly. It's an annual year-over-year reading. The price of oil a year ago was trading somewhere between $75 and $81 a barrel. So you still have this 20 to 25% premium on the price of oil year-over-year. So yes, I'm paying literally a dollar a gallon less for gas than I was a month ago, which blows my mind, but that is still significantly higher than what I was paying a year ago. So I actually do think we're going to get a higher inflation reading. That has been the biggest driver of these steady increases in inflation readings, and I don't see a reason why dropping off August or July of 2021 and then adding July of 2022's price of oil would bring the price of oil down and in turn bring inflation rate down. So I'm curious what you think is going to drive inflation lower or make it seem as though it's topped off. Well, I love it that you brought up oil because I think the last time I was on this show, you asked me what I'm watching most closely. And I think that's when you said wheat and that's why I brought up wheat, but I brought oil up and that was when oil was like around 110, 115 or so a barrel. And I said, what I'm expecting is something similar to what happened again in late 2008. Uh, in 2009, basically where oil, and this is what happened. And I I tweeted this out yesterday. I showed a comparison. I said, is this a similar set? I think it might be. And from 2007 to early 2008, oil spiked. NASDAQ and risk assets in general, so equities declined significantly. People were concerned about inflation. They were freaking about the high price of oil. Phase two, which happened sort of in the second, the latter half of 2008, oil started to come down. The price broke and stocks rallied from there. The NASDAQ rallied. And what was the rallying cry? They said, we're through it. We're through the worst of it. Inflation is broken. Oil's down. It's going to be good times ahead. People piled back into the markets. Phase three, which basically happened in Q4 of 2008, a Q1 of 2009, both of them broke. They, they descended rapidly. So basically, we're having the exact same response right now, right? Oil ripped higher to 120-ish, uh, somewhere in there. People were freaking out. Everybody's talking about inflation. Stocks hated it. They sank. Phase two, and we're so we're in phase two right now. Oil broke. It's now below $100 a barrel. I think it stays below $100 a barrel, and I think it goes lower, much lower, by the way. Stocks are rallying. Sweet. It's working. The Fed inflation probably peaked. Operation destroy things and destroy demand by the Fed is working. We're going to do it. Bull market rally, baby. We're back on. No. Uh, So phase three, which is coming soon, oil will crack. And I think it drops down to 70 or 60 or even $50 a barrel and, and equities fall with it. And we see kind of a massive decline. We actually see not, not only mild disinflation, what we saw back in late 2008, early 2009 deflation, we saw things go negative. We saw negative year over year type prices. So that 25% year over year oil price that you're talking about, I think that goes negative, possibly. It's a, there's a real risk of that happening. And I think it's probably likely that that will happen. So that's what I'm looking at. And I think this will happen again, faster than most people think. I think the numbers are changing so much more quickly than most people are taking are, are realizing because they're looking at what the Fed is saying. They're looking at what CNBC is saying. They're looking at lag- lagging data. They're saying, oh, well, you know, unemployment, wow, that really, that spiked hard a little bit, but it's still really strong and the economy is still very strong. And, and you know, there's lots of slack to work out. 
it is going to change very rapidly. I like to say all the time, risk happens slowly at first and then it happens all at once. And I think this is going to happen this time around as well. So I would say watch the next couple of months what happens. And I think we won't even be talking about oil near $100. We're going to be talking about it near 60 or 70 or even lower per barrel. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I welcome, I truly welcome that. And full disclosure, my dad did hear all of my rantings about wheat and we have started a wheat farm in our backyard. So this has begun. And I am going to be the driving force behind driving the price of wheat lower. So you are all welcome. And you can buy my wheat in the next six to 12 months. I wonder, and again, we're, we're doing a lot more speculating than, than I want, but how, how much of this posturing is around the upcoming midterms? And do your expectations shift if you know the Republicans do end up winning a majority in the Senate and the House or... Just what what expectations do you have that the midterm is actually impacting the broader economy right now? So first of all, I like to always start out by saying I don't care at all about politics. I actually despise politics. I'm neither Republican nor Democrat, so I just don't care. I actually think of all of them as the same. They're all from the same mold. You know, they have their little quibbles that they talk about and like to debate, but they all do exactly the same thing, especially from an economic standpoint. They're all Keynesian. They're all fiat brains. They don't understand Bitcoin. They don't understand how the real world works. They have their sort of play world and we're all, we all suffer because of it. So anyways, don't care. I don't think that the midterm elections will have much to do with it. At this point, I think the economy is sort of already going in this kind of free fall. If the Republicans win, and I do expect a Republican basically sweep because of how the economy is and how high inflation is, I think it's too late for the Democrats. In fact, it's interesting. They basically set up Powell and now they're as like a straw man and now they're just laying into him like it's his fault. He caused the inflation and and now he's bringing the economy down. Elizabeth Warren saying he's causing a recession. She's sort of right, but they also set him up for this. Like, so he's he's like the scapegoat. It's too late though. They just can't win. So again, I don't care. I don't think anything changes when they're, if they're, you know, Republicans come in and sort of sweep the, the House and the Senate or whatever happens. I think it's just going to be more of the same. And I think this economic cycle has more, it needs to play out a little bit longer. If this were a presidential election, I would feel a little bit differently, right? Like if say, and, and I'm not making any predictions, but say Trump was coming back and the election was was in November to, to decide between Trump and Biden or Trump and Clinton or something like that. That I think would have a different effect, right? Because Trump was very like, I want the stock markets to go up. That's all I care about. I want that to be my legacy. And he made policies and said things in his rhetoric and the way he directed the Fed, even though the Fed is independent, the way he directed the Fed was all about, you know, loose monetary policies, stock market up. So because that's not the point of this election and that just won't even really matter, that it's all it's gonna still be about inflation and and a looming recession. I just think that the Democrats have no chance and that it won't really impact the economic outlook in the near term. I, lo- I love the predictions. And also, I, I wanted to just say this, that 
loved your explanation of it. We won't talk any more politics. Jeff is very clearly one of the good ones. And everyone who's still mad at me about my political rants yesterday is just a whiny little baby. <laughs> um, look, we talked a little bit about how this is a bear market rally. We don't know how long it can go for. We also don't know where it can return or go down to. I'm going to ask the most obnoxious, obnoxious question anyone can ask, knowing that you're not going to give me an answer. But do you think the bottom is already in for the equity markets? The equity markets. I thought you were going to ask about Bitcoin. I no. don't think. I don't what, think it's what is in orange for the, coin. Right. So the stock markets, equity markets. No, I think the stock markets have much lower to go. In fact, I think the S and P. So the S and P hit a low of twenty some percent down. Just got into bear market territory. Now it's back above that. I think it goes down at least forty percent, maybe fifty percent before this is over. Nasdaq is usually a little bit more volatile, so it could go down even lower. So I'm thinking fifty to sixty percent from its highs. Um, and so, yeah, equities have much further to fall. I'm much more bearish on equities than I am on Bitcoin. Bitcoin, I think, already took the brunt of it. It already endured like this just massive capitulatory event because of all the garbage that happened over on the CFI world and DeFi, you know, the way it was sort of linked to 3AC and Celsius and Voyager and Luna, Terra Luna, even though it has nothing to do with those things, it gets dragged into it, unfortunately. So, but because of that, I think most of the downside is already worked in. Could it go lower for sure? But, and I don't really care it's what I tell people all the time and sorry to, to jump ahead if you're going to ask this, but so has Bitcoin bottomed? I don't know. I don't care. I think Bitcoin is super cheap right now from a long-term perspective. So whether or not it has bottomed, I don't know, but I'm dollar cost averaging into it personally as much as I'm able to, because I think that these prices are very, very cheap. And I use that based on, I like to look at a few things on-chain analytics. Most of those ratios that you look at show that it's basically at its cheapest points from a ratio perspective than it ever gets. That's where it is right now. I like to look at demand-based models and based models, the S-shaped curve of adoption of new massive world-changing technologies and Bitcoin absolutely is that. It's very, very early on the adoption cycle and, and you can put price tags onto that. And right now I would tag a, a fair market value price of Bitcoin based on those kind of models at about 35,000. And so it's trading at whatever it's trading at, 23,000 right now. I think it's dirt cheap. So I'm buying, I uh, you know I don't make individual recommendations to people, but if, if you're thinking about Bitcoin and you're still holding off and waiting for a bottom, we may not go lower. This may just kind of grind higher from here and you will really regret it if, if you're not at least starting to dip your toes into the water at this point. Just a quick reminder, none of this is financial advice. If you listen to a bunch of talking heads on the internet and base your entire financial decision-making off of that, you're kind of dumb. So please don't do that. <laughs> do your own due diligence. <laughs> I will say, wow. leading into Bitcoin 2022, Jeff, I gave you so much shit. Because you'd be like, look, guys, this market, it's not going to hold. And I'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. 500K <laughs> by conference day. And you'd be like, I think you're a crazy person. <sighs> little, little did we know, P, how crazy you actually are. <laughs> I still you're an optimist, it. man. You're just a fanatical optimist. I love it. It's oh, the way to be. deep insult. I'm wounded. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking fanatic. Yeah, you're absolutely right, though. I love it, man. It's hard not to be optimistic about the long-term future of Bitcoin, right? I mean, and so it gets you just so jacked up in the near term. But, you know, it's a it's a major asset class. I, if I can, real quick, you know, somebody asked me on a different podcast yesterday, you know, what do I think about the Bitcoin four-year cycle and, like, how is that going to play out for price? 
I said, I don't, I think the four year cycle is dead. I think Bitcoin officially trades as a major asset class, even though it's really small still, it's, it's sub $1 trillion in market cap. Basically it trades on the whims and the winds of the, the economy and inflation and what the fed's doing and all those types of things. So you have to think of it in those kind of terms. And so it, you know, it gets jacked up. So even though we're talking about that demand-based model that I look at, you know, and, and that where the price should be, sometimes it goes way, it deviates to the upside when the macroeconomic conditions are favorable and when liquidity is abundant in the system. In fact, Dylan and Sam, I just tweeted that before before I jumped on here, but Dylan and Sam posted something in their in their Bitcoin Magazine Pro subscription. It's the chart. It's literally how I think about investing and it's how I think about risk versus risk on versus risk off. When liquidity is being pushed into, yeah, thank you. There it is. When liquidity is being pushed into the system, when global M2, that's one way to kind of interpret that, is increasing, that flows into risky assets. And Bitcoin, again, it's the ultimate safe haven asset. It's actually the ultimate risk off asset. But in the near term, for now, people don't understand Bitcoin. They treat it like it's a little tech stock or it's like a quote crypto, which I, I can't stand that. So I spend my life telling people that Bitcoin has nothing to do with crypto. It's just better money. But anyways, when when liquidity is abundant, that flows into these assets and it definitely flows into Bitcoin and you see just massive, massive spikes in the price of Bitcoin. And I think it's it's kind of obnoxious. It's much too high. It goes too far, too fast. And that's why you have those parabolic move higher. And then you have those huge, painful Bitcoin winters, right? Where you go like two years, basically, where the price just kind of crumbles and then goes sideways. We're in one of those right now. It's painful. But we've come down so far, so fast, and now there's no liquidity in the system. At some point, when the when that reverses again and and the central banks start pushing liquidity back in and, and banks around the world start loaning money and the monetary supply expands again, a ton of that is going to go back into Bitcoin and we're going to see just some incredible price action. First, to make up for lost time, because like I said, I think it should be around 35K or so right now and we're sitting at 23. And then to get, you know, go bananas again and to go parabolic again. And who knows what those prices will be. But I think we're definitely well into the six digits by that point. I want to, I'm going to be, I'm being such a dick to you, Dr. Jeff, and I want you to know I'm not trying to be. When we talked about is the bottom in, you mentioned that you don't think that you don't think the bottom is in for equities, but that for Bitcoin it is. That would assume that the correlation between the two should in theory have been broken. What, what signals do you have for that? Is that the right conclusion to draw from your statement? Am I just being a jackass trying to do gotcha journalism on you? You're welcome to say that as well. Glad you brought it up. So first of all, people keep attributing this to me. So I didn't say I think the, the the Bitcoin bottom is in. I said it might be. So that's very different. But I think we're in sort of a long bottom formation right now that this could go on for a while. So if the if the bear market continues and this recession deepens, which I expect, liquidity is drained from the system. As we show, the M2 money supply throughout the world is decreasing. It's it's actually you know going negative basically. Um, that's going to hold the price of Bitcoin down. So my optimistic view of Bitcoin, at best, we see a slow grind higher. My kind of mid view of it is that it just kind of trades choppy sideways. And my pessimistic view is that it's still going to go lower. So even if it goes sideways or even chops a little bit higher, little by little, I still think we can see wicks down where it drops down and maybe hits 15 or maybe hits 10K. I don't know. I don't really care. But so that my whole point is, though, we're in the bottom region and these bottom regions can last for quite a long time. So it's just a great time to be buying for the long run. That's how I look at Bitcoin. Regarding decoupling, yes, that would 
imply that Bitcoin is going to basically decouple from equities. I think we're already seeing that a little bit in fits and starts, but I think that will become more prominent as this year continues. I think equities have further to fall and I think they're going to be the place to avoid. So I'm personally taking that as I think it's wise. Again, not right now and not individual investment advice, but I think what we're probably going to see is equities fall much further. I plan on shorting them on the way down and probably putting some proceeds into Bitcoin, which I think is dirt cheap at these levels. Did that answer your question? Mm -hmm. thank, okay. thank you for that. I, I can, I can stomach that and allow it. Go ahead, Pete. I wanted to feel free to keep going to get down this track, but at some point I want to get your thoughts on what's going on with Taiwan and China and how that affects your macroeconomic view. I don't look at geopolitical events, but my but the models that I use for because I look at price action and momentum and volatility, those things definitely affect price action and momentum and volatility. But I don't really care about them, if that makes sense. I think what's going on in Taiwan with China and the U.S. is 100 percent predictable. I think it's absolutely going to happen that we're going to have some sort of conflict. I don't know if that means like kinetic warfare. I don't know if it just means lots of threats where people are scared or if it's sanctions of some sort or who knows. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think it's inevitable, right? China wants Taiwan back under its control and the U.S. is going to kind of try to put up a stand. I don't think of that in terms of like it doesn't affect me in any way because it's impossible to know how the market will digest that, right? So if the market, if there's a lot of people like me that think that's going to happen, then you could say, well, it's probably priced in, but we don't know the time of it when it's going to happen. So is it really priced in or theoretically priced in? All those kind of things, you, you just never really know. Like the outcome of the Russia-Ukraine war, we don't know. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know how much is priced into the markets right now. So uh, that's kind of a long runaround answer to say, I don't base any of my trading or investment decisions on news events or possible news events. I just let the market price action kind of tell me what to do. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I was definitely more curious on just your, your take as a, as an extremely intelligent individual about what's going on in the world and what's going on there and what we expect to see. So you answered the question. I think it's just one more final thought on that. Taiwan is a very highly valued target, right? I mean, the, the, the semiconductor industry is mostly based there. It's a, it's very high value real estate. And so China wants it. The U S wants it. The Western world wants it to remain free. It's going to be the source of much conflict for sure. Much more than Ukraine is no offense. I mean, I feel terrible for the Ukrainians and everything that's going on. I think Putin's a dick, all that kind of stuff. But, but Taiwan is going to really raise the hackles of the entire world because Absolutely. of what it involves. So, yeah. Only because P brought up Taiwan. What are your feelings? All right, let me rephrase this. Why Why should we not be following every single trade and move the Pelosi's make in the current market climate right now? And I'm dead serious on that. You, sh you Maybe you should. That's one strategy that you could do, right? I mean, if, if you want to do that, they, they obviously have an inside scoop. They literally uh, can, can do legalized insider trading and they can literally trade on something and then make the laws and push them through and get what they want. So they have a huge advantage by being inside it, by doing legalized insider trading. I think it's atrocious that politicians are allowed to do this. It's just 
unconscionable. Like I cannot even believe they're able to do that, but there's no way they're going to change that because it's so lucrative. Like it's, 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 I would, I would just love to be able to do that. But of course I can, if I did anything like what she did, I would be in jail and, and my business would be shut down. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's a viable investment strategy. You could literally just do what Pelosi does now. She, she's not God, right. And she can't, she, she can sort of push the markets and she can sort of push legislation, but she's not 100% in control. So she could fail. She could put everything in NVIDIA and then push through this bill and, and the markets may reject that for whatever reason, or the bill may not go through. And then, and then you're stuck holding something that, you know, you thought was going to go up, but didn't go up. So everything has its risks. It, it's reasonable to follow her trades, I think, because obviously she She's pretty successful and and she has the insider track, but I just I'm just not interested in that kind of stuff. I like to just I just like to stay as far away from politicians and their their actions as as I can. So that's why I love Bitcoin so much because I can just completely be on a different track, a whole parallel system, a whole parallel world from these fiat politicians. Man, uh, I, I was gonna say like I I could not agree with you more. I find I I oh god. So much of the pol- the political game, it like makes me like, like I, I have so much respect and appreciation for people like Jason Brett, who we had on, you know, regulatory Jason we had on yesterday, because like he is able to step in there and do real good and make really, really positive changes, you know, for the Bitcoin space on that side. But for me, I just feel like, like ill, <laughs> the more I think about <laughs> it, like, it's like, to your point, I mean, like, what the actual fuck, like, how can anyone talk about the situation with regard to insider trading and, and politics and not just instantly come to the conclusion like oh this is totally fucked like what why is it legal for them and not for other businesses yeah why are they I need to, to totally with you p and i'm i'm with you on like i i'm so thankful for people like jason and you know it, all the people who are bitcoiners and who i think have a kind of a more accurate view of the world but are also into politics so thankful for them because i don't want to have any part of it i don't i want nothing to do with it I mean, I can't even watch politicians talk. I, I want to like throw stuff at the TV when I hear anybody from either side. And that's why people ask me what my affiliation is or they make assumptions like I don't like any of them. There's a couple, obviously, there's a few good ones around. But oh, my gosh, like I, I listen to those guys talk and I just want to like kick the TV in and, and burn the burn it down. But maybe we should move on from politics. I, I, I was about <laughs> to say you've entertained us far more on, on the political know, conversation I than I think you ever have. So thank you yep. for that. Yeah, you, uh, you know. You mentioned earlier about how the price of oil has been trading almost synonymously with the way it traded in 2008, and not not too many of us need a refresher of what actually was happening in 2007 and 2008. I brought up earlier just sort of the consumer credit reaching a certain level that we haven't really seen ever before. The housing market's different. There's a lot more equity owned by homeowners versus the negative equity that you saw in 2007. What are other clues that you are seeing in the market right now? that could lead to something catastrophic the way we saw in 2007? Or are there no clues like that? Are things like kind of fine and that is like a black swan type event that we, barring a global pandemic 2.0, 3.0, I don't know what strain they're on at this point, 8.0, whatever, barring something like that, like we should in theory be actually fine. And you're talking specifically about real estate? I'm just talking anything in general. Okay. Well, more consumer credit or like the credit markets in particular, but any, any of those specific ones. Yeah. I mean, I'm watching all of that. Well, first of all, let's talk about housing, housing. uh, You know, I've been telling people to for months now, housing will roll over. Absolutely. And I had literally like real estate agents and mortgage brokers and people 
telling me I was wrong. And like, they're like, you can't be serious. Like supply is so low, demand is so high. There's no way this will turn over anytime soon. I said, watch how fast it happens. It will happen so fast. You, you won't even believe it. Prices are going to start turning over. We're going to suddenly see this influx of supply and demand is going to drop precipitously. Prices are going to come down and it's all going to happen. And anyways, so I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm like, this is how fast things can happen. And so we're already seeing that in real estate. I also like to make very clear, I do not think this is a redo of 2007, 2008, 2009 for real estate. Real estate will absolutely come down and come down further, but it's not going to be this just absolutely, you know, decimate pure decimation of the real estate market. It's not going to wipe people out. We don't have the subprime issues that we had way back then. So I, I'm not predicting death and destruction for real estate, but I do think it comes down significantly and we have more to come. What gauges am I watching? All of that. Like I, I and I and I still think that the truth can still be found in the bond markets. And so I watch those very closely to see what happens. Like I think we're still going to see a rate hike, right? I talked about this earlier, 50 bips at least from the Fed in September, at least as of now, that's what it's showing. And I'll change if the data changes. And I did change recently because I just watched the Fed officials come out yesterday. And then I watched what happened to the two and 10 year yields and they both jacked up. And they basically said, we we believe you. We believe you, Fed, that you're going to raise the next, at the next rate hike, you're going to raise about 50 bips. So for now, I think that's what happens. But the, the bond yields, the bond market also is what directs the Fed. And the Fed doesn't necessarily direct the bond market. And so what I mean by that is the Fed, the two-year and the 10-year treasury yields basically put a cap on how high the Fed can raise rates. If they go above and beyond what the two-year is, the markets are going to absolutely panic and freak out. And that's where we start seeing like a credit crisis and we see bonds go kind of no bid and the, and all of these things happen and, and the equity markets collapse like precipitously. Those are the kind of things that happen. So that's what I'm watching. I'm watching to see what happens. I'm watching to see, I don't care as much about inflation, even though that's what's on everybody's mind. I watch more to see how the financial system is responding to this. And I think we're going to see much more carnage before this is over. One final point is because we have all of these things going on and a very strong US dollar, we're going to see carnage in developing nations first and foremost. So stuff that's going on in, in other nations where they have US denominated debt, it is killer for them to have a, an expensive dollar. So they're trying to pay back that dollar denominated debt by converting their own currency and it's getting harder and harder. And then on top of it, they're also entering into a recession in their local economies. So life is really hard and now they can't pay back this debt because the currency is even weaker against the US dollar. And so that's when these nations start to crumble and they can't print their way out of it like we can in the US, they actually default. And so I would say look for developing nations to actually default in the next year or so. That could get pretty ugly. So this it's like I said, there's much more ugliness to come. I don't think we're near a bottom, so I'm not really looking for bottom signs currently. Much more carnage to come before the Fed pivots and things get rosy again. So there could be more instances of countries having a similar, not necessarily saying what happened in Sri Lanka is going to happen in other places, but a collapse where they're just not able to pay their bills. And in turn, they're not going to be able to import things. They're not going to be able to feed their citizens. The wheat at the Q farm down here will be available for any and all of those countries though. So don't you, don't you fret out there. Right. right. Um, and I, one, one final point on that, never underestimate the ability of governments to do really stupid things during times of crisis. And they will, they're going to do capital controls. They're going to do things that are absolutely going to 
preserve themselves, preserve their power, preserve their government at the expense of the people. And so I would say, look for things like Sri Lanka to happen where the people rise up and be like, no, we're not going to starve because of your stupid policies. We need change. And I think that happens across the world. And, you know, it's even in the U.S., we're not immune to that stuff. And the income inequality here is uh, enormous and the largest it's ever been. Like we're talking like depressionary type levels where crazy stuff happens and crazy leaders rise to power during these kind of times. And this is when world wars happen because people get crazy and, and desperate. So I'm not looking forward to this. I don't like being all gloom and doom, obviously. It's kind of my thing now, but I don't want to be like this. But this is just what all the tea leaves are saying. It's just there's a lot of ugliness ahead of us. And and I'm so thankful we have Bitcoin as a relief valve and as a, you know, a lifeboat because we can opt out, but we're still not immune to it, right? Even if we own Bitcoin, we still live in these countries and we still live under these politicians and these crazy rules. And it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. I'm trying to download I'm trying to download this data of the all the countries that own US debt. But right now I just have the top five and I want to read them to you because and unless I'm missing something, I don't think any of these are developed countries. And I want to play the other side of the game. We have a sense of what could happen when developed countries are not developing countries, are not paying this debt. We saw it pan out in Sri Lanka. The top five holders of U.S. debt, this amounts to just under 50% of all the U.S. debt. Japan, China, U.K., Luxembourg, Ireland. I want to focus on the other side of this coin. What happens to these developed nations? Like Japan has been in, in the news a lot. The yen is doing whatever the yen is doing now. I'm curious just what, what effect would the collapse of the U.S. bond market have on these developed countries? Would they hiccup or would they kind of just continue to operate status quo and be like, oh shit, we have some new excessive losses, but we can operate and we'll continue to operate. I think this is the first time in a very long time where developed nations are actually at risk. So I think we're seeing huge weakness in Japan right now. And Japan is actually at risk for, you know, they, they just run the printing press too, like we do here in the U.S., at some point, they're going to have a collapse in the confidence of their currency. And we could see the end of the Japanese yen if things go very poorly. I think before this is all over, my take on it, you know, we have kind of two blocks forming in the world right now, right? We have we have China, Russia, and all the people who are sympathetic to them. And then we have the US and Europe and Japan and other countries kind of that are sympathetic to us. I think what's going to happen is as the European and Japanese economies crumble further, and they will crumble further, it's going to get ugly. I think the US is actually going to do something kind of unprecedented, and they're going to buy Japanese debt and European debt in bulk. And I think we're, and it's going to be this big facade of uh, expanding monetary supply, purchasing other countries' debt, so that are the debt of our allies. And I think they're probably going to do the same. And it's going to be this almost indiscernible uh, accounting of who owns whose debt. Um, and we're all going to sort of be supporting each other. And then if, if that's what's happening, we're going to be like, well, 
where is where's the base of all this like how do you even determine who's solvent if everybody just kind of owns everybody else's debt so i think we're going to see more of that i think china kind of wants out obviously they've been they've been decreasing their amount of us treasuries for the last many years because they saw the writing on the wall i think wisely they did and so that's just sort of the system we're going into and again all of these are symptoms of the end days of the keynesian economic experiment when you have fiat that's based on nothing eventually it comes to an end and eventually people start to say why would i want this currency if you just continue to expand it on a whim and buy this debt which is based on that currency which is based on nothing literally nothing why would we own this and so then that's the best marketing by the way for bitcoin like what if you had a currency that's actually sound and hard and won't change and not and is not susceptible to the whims of politicians and central bankers so anyways i digress but i think this is just it's all inevitable and it's going to happen and it's all going to be ugly and it's going to create just massive volatility throughout we're going to see these huge asset inflations with intermixed with huge deflationary busts and i think that happens basically throughout this entire decade and it's going to be ugly so you're telling me the centralized controllers of the global financial system will, rather than forego this control for the sake of humanity, continue to manipulate it so they can retain control for as long as humanly possible? Shocking, I know. They'll hold yeah. on to control until they're overthrown, right? That's how all this stuff works. At least we'll be able to vote these people out in the next election cycle, right? <laughs> matter the, the, the next group is going to be exactly the same exactly. Like it just doesn't it's, matter so it's the harlem globetrotters and the washington generals they just, they <laughs> the reason i say that is because we don't vote for any of these people in charge of central banks all across the world yep. that that's that's the most troubling part of all of this the chart that we pulled up earlier and i, I posted it in the comment thread as well that that is essentially every single country around the world that holds U.S. treasuries. Jeff, I, I want to unpack this with you. I know this is a bit of a speculative sort of statement that you made, but how how would they, being the U.S. government, I don't care who, and it's not about the politics of it, but how would it be presented that we are now going to start buying Japanese debt or now we're going to start buying European debt? What would that narrative be? Or what do you expect the narrative to be so that people kind of just like go on with their days and don't question it? I think it will. I think the way it will be marketed from here in the U.S. is that we're the good guys. We're the strong brother, the strong parents that are going to help out our beloved allies. And they're in a lot of trouble. They're in our system, but you know what? We get, we need to stick with them. Like they stuck with us. So we're going to, we're going to, you know, expand our monetary supply and we're going to purchase just crazy amounts of their debt in order to sustain the system. And so it's kind of like, I have a bigger credit card than my two friends that are, that are barely making it and they've already maxed out their credit card. So I'm going to take your debt and I'm going to put it on my credit card and then everything will be good. And if you understand how, you know, the real world works and the economy works and finance works, you understand that that's not a sustainable solution, right? And so that's what I think is going to happen. I think they're going to sell it like we're doing a good thing. I think probably like places like Japan and Europe will actually probably respond positively in the short term. It may help this crazy fiat fiasco to last for years and years longer because of that. Every time we have one of these crises, something happens and we see these kind of new kind of regime changes or like paradigm shifts, things you weren't supposed to be able to do, you can do like, hey, we're going to cancel the debt of, you know, whatever, all student debt. We're going to cancel 
auto loan debt. We're going to just do all these things that you're not supposed to be able to do based on the current paradigm, but then something changes, they don't waste the crisis and they change the rules. And that will allow the fiat system to kind of limp along further. And to, to that'll be the foundation of the next huge asset bubble before we have the next massive deflationary death spiral as well. So it just, it continues, the fiat fiasco continues, but in the meantime, lots and lots of smaller fiats and possibly one big one, Japan, and even the euro, I think is at risk this time around. I think those fiat currencies may go down and and that purchasing power is going to get transferred somewhere. I think most of it goes into the US dollar. Some of it, the people that are sympathetic to China and Russia, purchasing power will go to them into their currencies. And then the third and the more obvious one is into Bitcoin. And that's how Bitcoin grows and becomes much larger in the coming years. All right. So I have a very biased take on this. So P might need to take over this part of the conversation. But when you say things like, oh, if they just started forgiving random loans, like auto loans or student loans, it would help the fiat system continue to last for a little bit longer. Why would it be able to last longer? I personally, like I've said repeatedly on this show, Papa Biden, pay off my fucking student loan debt already. You you promised. That's why we gave you this power. Just do it. It's literally like you senile <laughs> old fuck. But I, I very much take the side of it's going to destroy the dollar by doing this, and in turn, it will give Bitcoin a further, further cement Bitcoin's place on the global stage as a necessity for currency, rather than uh, like I don't think it has that effect. So why, why do you think it would actually let the dollar last for longer? Because to, to Greg Foss's credit, and I, I keep repeating this, I love it, the US dollar is the best crack house on the crack street, right? So all fiat currencies are trash and they're all working their way towards zero at, diff- at a different pace. The developed economies, it's a little slower pace towards zero. The developing nations, they're moving quickly towards zero. They all have to die first before the dollar dies. And if you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the dollar milkshake theory. Basically what happens is the, is the dollar sort of absorbs the purchasing power of those other currencies first. So I think the dollar is going to be around much longer than a lot of us in the Bitcoin community presume just because of this whole deal. And because we have the world's reserve currency and because the world's reserve asset is U.S. Treasuries, people have to buy dollars in order to get at this reserve asset that strengthens the dollar and it weakens their currencies. So I don't think the dollar dies until all of these other currencies go down first. And this is gonna take a long time to play out. We're still like years and decades and decades away from all this kind of stuff happening. In the meantime though, you gotta not discount what exponential growth of the Bitcoin monetary network means. Exponential is really fast. And we're so we're comparing exponential growth versus linear growth. I think Bitcoin rises much further and faster than almost anybody realizes. And that's why I can see this hyper Bitcoinization world. It's hard to imagine how this happens, you know, like how quickly this happens, because it happens not as soon as we want it to happen, but it's gonna be sooner than we think it's gonna happen. So I sort of, I figured this out once where I was looking at the growth rate of the Bitcoin network and basically addresses and things like that. And I think it actually could happen as soon as kind of 2025, 2026, where we see kind of the, at least the majority of the world of the world's citizens actually using Bitcoin and actually having a Bitcoin account of some, of some sort. And if that happens, this whole concept of hyper Bitcoinization will happen 
quite a bit more quickly than most people I think are assuming that it can, especially now when the price is down and we and we see it and everybody's calling for the death of Bitcoin and blah, blah, blah. I think it could happen sooner than a lot of us think, but I still think that the dollar will stick around a lot longer than a lot of these other currencies. As kind a, of like, if I can say one more thing, please. kind of like, I think, you know, we, we always, we obviously have lots of issues with crypto, right? And altcoins. Just because we hate them and they're trending towards zero doesn't mean they go to zero and disappear. Those blockchains are going to just sort of be around for, you know, as long as one person has that blockchain or two people have the blockchain on their on their computers, they don't just go away. They may still sort of exist in some fashion. So I think in a similar way, that's how I think about government fiat currencies. Even the U.S. dollar will become less and less relevant over time, but I still think it exists and sticks around for a lot longer than we think it will. I mean, hey, so how much? Told you guys, he's Doctor Bear. Doctor Bear is giving us a a CK would say a very bearish take on Bitcoin's future and and the what? future of the kidding? U.S. dollar. No, that was not. I mean, that was I, bearish. I got yelled at for saying that I'm still going to transact in dollars when I'm old. So yes, that is bearish. <laughs> what? No, I'm no, making no, 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 that no. call. No, that his take just now was not a bearish take. He was saying hyper Bitcoinization in as soon as 2025 or at the beginnings of that. And uh, the US dollar remains strong because of dollar milkshake theory style arguments. One thing I was going to ask is, can you actually give a cogent and succinct explanation or what the dollar milkshake theory is for our audience? and why it applies in the situation. Sure, I'll try, I'll try to do it as simply as possible. So, so the whole concept is some country has a milkshake sitting over on their table and you're in the same restaurant. You're the US, you're, you're the United States and you have a long straw, call that the US dollar, and you're sitting across the room. You're dipping your straw into their milkshake from across the room and you're, and you're drinking it. So that's sort of the analogy to sort of have in your head. And what it's saying is, and it's kind of what I was talking about earlier, all of these developing nations who are borrowing U.S. denominated debt, and there are a lot of them, they have to pay back these debts in dollars. So they have that whatever currency they have, that's fine, but they have to convert that currency into the U.S. dollar. And whenever they do that, they're selling their currency to buy the U.S. dollar to pay back this debt. As they do that, they're basically doing a run on their currency, right? They're selling their currency, making it weaker to buy dollars, making the dollar stronger. And that goes on all over the world all the time. And when we get into recessionary type conditions, what happens is the dollar gets even stronger. It, these countries are also in a recession. Their economies are weak, even weaker than ours. Their currency is extremely weak towards the dollar. So now they have to sell more and more of their currency to buy more of the US dollars to pay back this debt. And eventually they can't do it anymore. And what happens is this the value of this currency, this developing nation currency goes into the dollar. They, it basically, it's a pure speculative type attack and they just can't afford it anymore. And so they have to just, then they get absorbed by the US dollar. That's the same thing, by the way, that's kind of happening with Bitcoin for, for different reasons. It's not because they own you know Bitcoin denominated debt. But Bitcoin, just by its monetary design, by its principles, its fundamental code and, and principles, 
it is, you know, it's, 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 it's perfectly scarce. It's, there's never going to be more of it. It's an appreciating asset over time. So just by nature, it's going to absorb the value of all these currencies. Anytime you sell that currency to buy Bitcoin, you're transferring the purchasing power. You're basically weakening your currency to strengthen the Bitcoin currency. And that only, the only way that can go over time is up as long as people continue to adopt Bitcoin and, and to start to, to use Bitcoin. So I don't know if I did a good job explaining that, but that's kind of what the theory says. And I think it's inevitable that that stuff is going to happen from the perspective of a strengthening U.S. dollar. And then on the side here, sort of related, we're going to see strengthening of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin monetary network for similar reasons. The purchasing power has to go somewhere. It, it probably going to a lot of it's going to go to the U.S. dollar first and the Chinese yuan first, but then it's going to go into Bitcoin ultimately. Couldn't agree with you more. Do decisions like Vladimir Putin saying, I don't want to accept U.S. dollars for our oil, only pay me in rubles or Bitcoin or gold, what effect does that have on the strength of the dollar on the global stage? Well, it definitely weakens it, right? I mean, anytime you're not... So basically what they're saying is, screw you, America. You know, you you screwed us, so we're screwing you now. And they've wanted to do this for a long time, I would suggest or surmise. I don't know, obviously, but I'm guessing they have, and China's the same. They're like, why are we on this crazy US dollar system that basically hurts us and it helps the US? So, so they're saying we no longer need to sell our currency to buy US dollars so that we can buy oil. And that's what the system is like throughout most of the world, like it is with the whole treasury system. Now they're saying, you know what, we're, screw the dollar, we're doing it all in our own currency. So we're not going to weaken our currency so we can strengthen your currency and put you in a better position. We're going to take that benefit and achieve all that benefit for ourselves. And so that's what's happening. That's what's happening in Chinese and Russia right now. And that's going to increase over time for sure. The U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency is is uh, on a steady decline uh, and it's not going to reverse, I don't think, anytime soon. I think it's just going to continue to decline over the coming years. I just... This is the most intense sigh I've heard in a long time. <laughs> I know. I can't I, wait to hear what you're going to say. I just... I'm trying to not take the political route to ask this question. No, don't. Stay away from it. I, that's fine. So play, let's play a little game. China is now under sanctions because they did something directed at Taiwan. This uh, political. This is political. I know. We can talk politics. That's fine. I, it, I, I just want to give them a hard time. I want. I want to. <laughs> I want to kind of play this with the China of it all because China has so much of our debt, and we've kind of seen now what the playbook of if you do something that the U.S. doesn't agree with, as Iran has seen for the last fifty years, as Russia is now quickly seen. What happens when China enters some sort of a sanctioned period of time? Why would they not then try to go ahead and follow the Russian playbook and strengthen their own dollar, further diminishing the value of the US dollar on the global stage? Is that a scenario that's feasible? How much weed did I smoke before coming on this show today? Am I a crazy person is what I want to know. Well, first of all, you are a crazy person. You probably did smoke too much weed. But- that's not the that's not the point. Good question. Just kidding. But uh, so, 
Yes, I say that's absolutely what they're doing. And and that's absolutely what Russia and China are doing. I think they're colluding on this. They're banding together. They're saying the, the U.S. has, and from their perspective, the U.S. has screwed us for so long. Why are we allowing this? I think this happened long ago, like a decade ago. They decided, you know what? What are we on this system for? Why do we keep buying U.S. treasuries and supporting the U.S. military industrial complex? Why wouldn't we take a different approach and try to get off of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency? Therefore, what we're going to do is we are going to follow the older school playbook of we are going to strengthen our own currencies by backing them with commodities. So what's happened in the last decade, China was buying commodities like crazy. They were stockpiling commodities. Russia is very commodity rich, right? Tons of oil in Russia. They both have a very significant amount of gold and they've been increasing their gold stores and just their commodity stores in general. Why? They're going to use that as basically the basis to say, look, everyone knows that the US dollar is literally backed by nothing. It used to be backed by gold until 1971, and then they got off the gold standard and they literally are backed by nothing. If you disagree, the US military comes after you and sanctions come after you. That's the price we pay. So they're saying we have an alternative and now we're kind of powerful enough in, and America is kind of aging and senile enough, You know, no pun intended to our leaders, but basically right, ruled by octogenarians who who have dementia. And and we're, we're sort of a waning power. And so Russia and China are saying, look, this is our time to sort of stand up and say, we have a stronger currency that is based on actual real commodities like gold, like oil, those kind of things. Now, I would say the one thing that they're not considering Russia and China is Bitcoin. Bitcoin to me is the most obvious, best, hardest asset. Yes, it's digital, so you can't touch it or look at it, but it is what it is. It's basically perfect money. So if I were them, I and I'm not, of course, and I'm not sympathetic to a lot of their causes, but they should be backing this on Bitcoin. They should be using Bitcoin as a reserve asset to show, look, not only do we have gold and oil and other commodities to back our currencies, which are stronger than the US dollar, we have a buttload of Bitcoin as well. And so look how strong we are. And, and that would be a good way to give the finger to the US. The US, on the other hand, which is declining and, is, and has a dollar backed by nothing, backed by treasuries, which are backed by the dollar, which is backed by nothing, they should be like, dude, we should be printing money as much as possible, and we should be buying as much Bitcoin as a reserve asset as possible to strengthen our weakening U.S. dollar. They should absolutely be doing that today. That's the first thing they should do right now on their agenda. But of course, they're not going to do that because that gives credibility to the Bitcoin and acknowledges that we're weakening and we would never do that. So I'm just not into this game playing like, hey, you know, we're so strong and we would never admit that we're weak and we don't need help and we rule the world. I think that's so stupid. And that's how great empires crumble and fall and go into obscure oblivion. And so that's where we're headed right now. And I hate watching it. But hopefully at some point we get some Bitcoiners up higher up in legislation. Hopefully we get some Bitcoiners for president. Hopefully we get some Bitcoiners, you know, at the treasury and the Fed and all these kind of things. And then that will change. And, and once it does, once a developing nation, excuse me, a developed nation, by the way, I, my prediction is Japan will be the first one. They're, they're far away from that right now, but they're in such dire straits right now. And they're, they're, they keep trying all these crazy obnoxious things. Is it really that obnoxious to think of Japan instead of buying all these other garbage things and buying all the equities in the country and buying all the bonds and all this kind of stuff? What if they bought some Bitcoin and strengthened their currency that way? That would actually provide longevity and strength to their currency. And it wouldn't be that crazy. And if they did it, 
then then all of the other developed nations would be forced to do it. That would be the game theory in action. So I'm sort of waiting for that announcement. I hope it happens. You heard it here first. I've been talking about that actually for about a year or so. So we'll see what happens. But that's if I had to guess which developed nation was going to embrace Bitcoin as a reserve asset first, I would actually pick Japan as the dark horse. Tino, clip it for shipping that off to all socials. We're time stamping this at a minute 39 and yes. a half. Jeff Ross making the call. Japan will be the first developed. I actually love the rationale and logic behind that. And I mean, it would just, as you said, the game theory would dictate that it forces the hands of all the other developed countries. Do you think that that is likely to happen before any other developing countries continue to adopt Bitcoin? Have we sort of seen that slowdown given El Salvador buying it a little prematurely, if you will? Well, normally I would say no, because first of all, I think David Hunter said me for president. So first of all, please know that I hate politics. So if you vote me into the presidency, I'm going to hate it all the time. But all I would do is <laughs> at the Bitcoin standard and, and then I would just leave and I would quit. But will so is it possible that like Japan does this before other developing nations? I think developing nations are still the most likely to embrace a Bitcoin standard like in El Salvador because they understand the need for it. They have these currencies that are collapsing in real time all the time. They actually have actual hyperinflation, which is just the most miserable form of existence from a monetary and financial standpoint. They understand what Bitcoin has to offer, the value proposition. They're not like the US where most Americans just think of like, oh, Bitcoin, yeah, it's a crypto that you can make a bunch of money in. It's a speculation. That's not how they view it. These other countries that have crappy fiat currencies, they see their purchasing power being eroded in real time. They understand the value of Bitcoin. They understand that Bitcoin is a way to protect their purchasing power over both time and space. It gives them property rights just automatically. It's, you know, you can't confiscate it. You don't need permission. There's all these things about Bitcoin that are way far superior to their current option of their current government fiat currency. So I think most likely it's these that will continue to start adopting a Bitcoin standard of some sort before a developed nation would. But if any developed nation were to do it, it's going to be Japan and and they need it sooner than later because they're collapsing very quickly. I, I just finished rereading uh, the mandibles and the, the experience that the characters have in it of like slowly coming to understand and many of them being kind of delusional about the situation for, you know, period of this, by the way, the mandibles is a book. It goes through like a fictional account of sort of the descent of the United States of America into a hyperinflated world and, you know, explores some pretty interesting things aside. Have you read it? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, interesting. Oh my gosh. Okay. You got to check it out. You will right. love it. It's a really, really interesting book. It doesn't, I cannot remember the author's name. It's 1987 me right meets today. You mean 1984? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is the funniest thing you've said all week. <laughs> Whoa. The year was 1987. Whoa. George Orwell was trapped in. Yeah. Great book. I won't waste everyone's time, but it just, uh, it goes through, it doesn't talk about Bitcoin. It, it, that's just not a concept in the novel, but it goes through, you know, the United States, uh, you know, <laughs> defaulting on all their debt and all this crazy stuff and the politics and the experience of different sort of classes of the country coming to exist in that, in that new world. Um, but uh, I guess I'm curious what we've been talking now for, you know, over an hour, what have we not asked about? What are the, the important parts of this conversation that 
we haven't discussed today so far? Well, that's a pretty broad question. And I, I ramble so much. I feel like I talk about everything when I talk. So, Or maybe another way of saying it is, what are, what are people that are in the Bitcoin space missing? And maybe we've already talked about this today, but like, what are some, some major pieces that you think about or that you've thought about recently that are not being discussed openly enough? Yeah, well, that's good. And so, so one thing that I think about a lot that I don't see getting talked about on Twitter much, especially Bitcoin Twitter, is kind of what I was saying earlier about Bitcoin being, because of its properties, because it's a sound money, because it gives you property rights, because it's permissionless, because it's you know unconfiscatable and secure and decentralized and apolitical. We, so many Americans still don't get that. I see this all the time. I get invited into rooms that people are trading Bitcoin and it kind of drives me nuts uh, only because they're completely missing the point of it. Bitcoin is savings. Like it's literally just the greatest savings technology that's ever been invented. It's world changing. It's country changing. It's social justice for a country, for people who are being oppressed by their government regimes and politicians who do absolutely stupid things and destroy their countries. Bitcoin literally can protect you from that. And so what I hate hearing, and I hear it all the time, is talking about trading strategies for Bitcoin, right? Like, have we topped? Have we bottomed? Like, should I buy now? I look at the four hour charts, all these kind of things. It's just completely besides the point and it's missing everything. That's actually why I love Alex Gladstein, by the way. I haven't met him personally. I've talked a couple of times on spaces with him, but I don't know him personally. I love what he does and I love his heart, kind of his heart for humanity and his heart for social justice, because I think that's sort of at the core and the foundation of Bitcoin is it's better money for the plebs. It creates a better world from the bottom up. And so I think we should be fixated on the price of Bitcoin way less than we are, right? And again, it's something that the rest of the whole crypto space, which has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but it gets attached to Bitcoin all the time and people think they're similar, has nothing to do with that. And that's that's all speculation, arts, entertainment, gaming, whatever, you know, and that's sort of like the Las Vegas side of things. But Bitcoin itself is better money for the world. And so I just like to kind of emphasize that point every once in a while, like, why are we here? Why is Bitcoin better money? What really can it do for people? And this is what it does. And people in these developing nations all around the world who are struggling mightily, like people in Sri Lanka right now, people in the Ukraine who are under attack, you know, people in Argentina and Turkey and all that you can pick countries with all these crazy things going on right now. Bitcoin just makes sense to them. And I want those people to hear me and to be like, you know what, I should maybe put some of our purchasing power into Bitcoin while we can before our, our the value of our whatever currency goes to zero. And, and nobody can take that from us. And the government can't just walk into your bank account or close your bank account or, you know, and so put get Bitcoin and get it off the exchanges and get it into cold storage and into your possession and start learning how to be sovereign and realize you don't need the government to decide what's best for you and your money. You can do all of that yourself and you can do it all through Bitcoin. So that's what I think about. And we don't talk about that kind of stuff much, but it's not, it's not as entertaining to people for whatever reason as price action is. But man, I just would beg people to quit caring so much about short-term price action and look at the big picture and look where this is going. And it's going places and it's going to be much, much, much bigger and more relevant and prominent than it is today, 10 years from now. Could not agree more. For, for people who are obsessed with numbers like myself, instead of price, what are, what are some adoption numbers that you like to look at? 
I, you know, I love the basic, it's, it's the simplest one that you can go on Glassnode and look up and you just look up Bitcoin addresses that are non-zero. So you have some amount of Bitcoin. And why do I do that? People say that's not relevant, but I look at people in countries like El Salvador who maybe own a little, you know, stand food stand of some sort, and maybe their weekly income is $5 or something like that. So making a literally like a 50 cent purchase worth of Bitcoin is actually kind of a big deal for them where it wouldn't even be, you know, it would be negligible for us. Um, so I love just thinking about that, like anybody anywhere who has any amount of Bitcoin and then looking at the growth of those addresses over time. And they you know what they do from 2010 till today, they do this. And there's little bits of this in between here, but it's basically up and to the right. And because of that, that tells me that it is being adopted worldwide and it will continue to be adopted worldwide. And that's that's what gives me hope. Like I love seeing the little tiny addresses grow because that's what we want to see. And that's who it's for. Those are the true plebs, right? They're, they're, they're putting their 50 cents that they saved that week into Bitcoin. That's a start and that's awesome. And that's life-changing for them. So, you know, again, not, not treating it like it's a trade, it's a crypto to trade and speculate in, but treating it as savings technology. That, that to me gets me really excited and gets, that's what I'm passionate about. So well said. And honestly, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Jeff, please let everyone know how they can stay up to date with everything you're doing, how they can know what you've got cooking up and where your latest and best trades are going to be found at. <laughs> Perfect segue. So yeah, if, <laughs> if you want to hear my obnoxious takes on a regular basis, I'm on Twitter all the time. So I'm at, at Valeshire Cap. I think it's it's by my name there on the screen. And if you want it, you know, I obviously, so I invest, I'm a hedge fund manager and I, I have an RIA registered investment advisory. So I manage separately managed accounts like IRAs and, and brokerage accounts and things. I obviously do things quite differently than the standard financial planner and investment advisor. If you want to learn more about what I do there, I'd be happy to you know, interact with you a little bit. You can send an email to me at info at valeshire.com. That goes straight to me. And if you want to inquire about my services, we can do that. But otherwise, if you, if you don't care about all that other stuff, just, just buy Bitcoin, get it off exchanges, be self-sovereign, and, and we're going to make a better world. Jeff, I just want you to know, if you see... Jeff Ross, 2024, trending on Twitter. <laughs> My bad, bro. Give Dr. Jeff, Dr. Bear a listen. I will DM you this very creepy picture that P made of Dr. Bear, just so you can have the nightmares that I had last night. But other than that, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. I hope to have you back soon. And I want to remind everyone who is watching right now, please go ahead and lock in your tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of that. And if you pop over to the Bitcoin Magazine store, you can get 10% off of anything your heart desires in there using the promo code BMLIVE. That's it for our show today. Have a good night, guys. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.